and um we are going live okay in theory we should be live um Hey everyone, welcome for uh, to another live interview here on my Universe Today channel. Uh, this week, I'm uh, pleased to bring on a special guest to talk about sampling the solar system. Talking with uh, Justin Simon from NASA. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So the question I always ask people: Who are you? What do you do? Yeah, so I am a uh, scientist at the Johnson Space Center, uh, and I, in my day job, I uh, lead a group of uh, scientists who work with rocks. Typically, these rocks are from outer space or from extraterrestrial materials, but we also work on rocks from Earth. Um, and we're largely chemists or geochemists. We also call ourselves cosmochemists. Mm -hmm. uh, and we determine sort of the, the way that these rocks formed through the chemical record and we also use geologic uh, and geochemical and geo, excuse me, geochronological uh, constraints to put uh, these processes in a temporal sequence. So, I mean, I mean, the tools and techniques for figuring out how old things are here on Earth are different from the ones that you'll use across the solar system. So, like, what is the main method that you figure out how old various structures are here on Earth? Yeah, so uh, that's a really good question. And there are essentially two um, broad uh, uh, concepts of time that we use. One is relative time. And so a lot of that is observational. Uh, you know, we evaluate what is on top of or what is an outside of and versus what is below or inside of uh, a certain texture or a certain geologic outcropping that we're, we're studying. Um, and then we infer that, that the, the order is the older on bottom and then the younger is on top. Sometimes I get converted in a, like a river channel or something like this. And that's when we have to really you know, carefully evaluate the geologic context of the of the terrain. Um, the other technique, which is largely a laboratory-based technique, is to determine the absolute age uh, of the sample uh, itself from that outcrop or from that that geologic feature. Um, and we do that in the laboratory uh, from a myriad of different ways. Oftentimes, extracting out uh, certain elements and looking at uh, radioactive decay between, um, you know, parent to you know daughter uh, isotopes, sort of like your your uh, uranium to lead or 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 you know these isotopic systems, and we use a, we use more than one system ideally to evaluate uh, the, the the age of formation. Or some most rocks have more than one age because they're not determining just the formation age, but first the formation age and then the you know the reheating and deformation age and then maybe a later alteration of that age or something like this and so but using those various different tools that are all based on elements so therefore they're all based on chemistry those chemical behaviors linked with those ages can tell us something about sort of the absolute sense of how that rock's history proceeded that's interesting i didn't so so if i pick up say like a metamorphic rock you could not only figure out when it turned into its current form, but even its earlier lives. That's right. Not not always. Sometimes it's just too disturbed or or too metamorphosed, if you will, and everything's been reset. But we have the ability in almost every um, common rock uh, uh, to extract 
some vestige of the history of that rock um, it, from its very beginning to you know when it we we sampled it from the surface. And actually, for meteorites, you know, this is really important because we're looking through a, a really traumatic event that is coming to Earth through our atmosphere. Um, and so, you know, the outside of it and potentially the alteration on the surface of Earth uh, in a desert or in even in Antarctica where it's where it's cold most of the time, uh, ice cold, right? Uh, we still have to see past that um, that that latest uh, sort of surficial uh, event. Um, sometimes we get really lucky and we have little exotic or little remnants of, of an earlier um, uh, history of that rock as a little relic. And, and, and they may preserve even the textures and, and original minerals of that we call protolith. That's a, so, so, I mean, people are generally familiar with the idea of, say, radiometric dating, carbon dating, things like that. But I want to focus specifically on the techniques that you use to date the oldest objects, the things that are in the age of the solar system era, the meteorites that you do. So, so, so let's say that a, that, a, that a woman in British Columbia comes into the lab because a meteorite has fallen through a roof uh, next to her. Um, so you've got a fresh sample of the solar system here. What do you use? What, which methods do you use to try and figure out the age of that sample? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll just reiterate, not to make a major tangent here, but the reason that we are doing sample return missions is even that fresh sample isn't fresh, yeah. right? It, you know, it went through the roof, it went through atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. So it has been, you know, disturbed, if you will. Um, but I'll just assume and ignore those, those features. If we're really looking at the, the antiquity of that rock, um, and a lot of the geologic processes that may be different in age, that far back in time, we can't really resolve easily, right? We, we have, you know, geologic processes are, you know, thousands to tens of thousands of years long events. But when it's four, four and a half billion years ago, you know, the resolution of our chronometers are such that, you know, that's, that's within uncertainty. But nevertheless, uh, you know, we have two primary uh, radiometric systems that we use, the uranium lead system or the uranium thorium lead system, and then the argon argon system. You know, those are very different elements. One is is based on, uh, you know, lithophile elements. One is based on a noble gas. And those, again, have chemically different uh, behavior. And so the gases, you know, if you have a little bit of a heating, th those gases are released and it's sort of a resetting of, of that event. Whereas in order to reset the uranium lead or you know the uranium thorium lead system, you really have to 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 heat it and affect it significantly more. And so, anyways, if those two ages were were what we call concordant or the same, um, that would give us a lot of confidence that whatever events happened to this rock in its ha past are within air, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, the air can be quite small, uh, you know, with the, in the best labs on earth, uh, you know, we're talking only, only <laughs> a million years <laughs> or so. Right. Uh, but, you know, out of, that's a, that's a part in a thousand or part in, a, a, you know, even fewer uh, or more than that uh, for a four and a half billion year old rock. So, I mean, I mean, you, you mentioned like a couple of techniques there. I mean, is, do you still want to go for multiple methods is there one that is fairly like if you just if you could only do one test if i gave you a meteorite and and you only got to do one test which would be the test that you'd do 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And there are other techniques that I didn't mention. Yeah. Um, I mentioned those two because th they are the most uh, commonly used and, and in part because they have, and not to say that, that there's a hierarchy to um, our systems, but they sort of span the range uh, between sort of robust, most difficult to reset versus more easily reset. Uh, there are some more easily ones reset, but they're so easy. We don't usually use them for old rocks because <laughs> you know it's it's kind of kind of a little bit pointless right um but then the, the other thing that you're uh getting at is is not just the isotopic system or the elements that we choose but how we go about measuring those elements and so there are there are methods in which we are using a, an, a like a focused beam whether they're an ion beam or an electron beam or some type of laser um you know to extract out a targeted region of the rock uh, versus taking that rock apart, kind of like, uh, you know, it, it basically pulling apart the constituents and then working with those constituents in um, a chemical processing sequence in which we can extract the most precise and accurate um, measurements uh, for those individual components. One is uh, allowing us to get at much smaller spatial scales and without handling the rock as much and the whereas the other one you know we have to to you know really we have to decompose the rock to its constituents and we have to pull them and sort them into their different minerals typically uh and then chemically uh, you know digest those and then se separate out the elements and then characterize them and so um you know th th these are different techniques but but in combination uh they tell you somewhat uh different things so for example um you know with the in situ techniques we can go that is smaller minerals that are not commonly large. Um, and oftentimes those have the greatest um, ability to be to have their ages determined uh, be because of their chemical composition. And so that's one approach. But then in the other approach where you're decomposing the rock into its constituents and then in, in, in measuring those, it, those, those larger major rock forming minerals, uh, we can then be confident that whatever age we determine from those constituents are really important for the entire rock. And so then when we combine those two different approaches, uh, those ages, I mean, uh, or compare, I should say, those two ages, then we can also get a, a sense of how robust uh, or what, if, what is the geologic history of that, that rock. So for example, you could have one of these small minerals that forms uh, really late in the form in if you had an igneous rock or a metamorphic rock in the sort of sequence of that rock solidifying or or you know dropping below the the, the temperature in which th things are mobilized elements are mobilized in a metamorphic uh rock um and that would if you looked at the major elements uh sorry the major mineral phases to determine that age and then you looked at those later forming accessory minerals and they were the same the entire temperature interval in which that rock formed from from sort of the first minerals to crystallize to the last minerals to crystallize, you could determine the age span. And, and it, maybe it's the same age within mm -hmm. resolution or maybe it's, you know, 10 million years or something or, you know, you can you can evaluate that. Um, so, so, you know, so you have, again, another way. Right, right. Sort of so, you, so you'd want age. two. So you would you would you'd storm out and go, no, I need two. But um, so 
you know, we've talked about this idea, um, you know, and, and this work of like taking a sample, putting into a, a beam uh, or taking the rock very carefully apart into its constituent minerals and then sample each one. That sounds very complicated, very sophisticated machinery. So now I want to move to Mars and look yeah. at the, you know, the most some of the most incredible robots ever built. And yet they are not. uh laboratories of that complexity on the surface of Mars. So, so as a geologist, how, how do you attempt these same kinds of tasks using the tools on hand that you have on say perseverance? Yeah, great question. And, uh, you know, it, it's right down the alley of what we're trying to do. So we have a combination of, of instruments on the, on the Rover, uh, that allow us to do the relative age determinations or the, you know, the, the geologic context and relative compositional differences. Um, some of them are, are, uh, you know, we can get uh, quite accurate, uh, chemical data, whether it be, uh, elements, inorganic elements or organic elements, uh, or compounds. Um, we cannot do the age determinants determinations yet. But that's part of the sample return component, right? right? Which we'll so talk about in, what in we're a doing second. now yeah. is we're prioritizing which outcrops and which geologic units and which terrains provide the most leverage in terms of understanding the geologic history of the crater and the area eventually, hopefully, outside of the crater. And then, or being parsimonious about this, we're saying, okay, we'd love to sample all of those rocks in this hillside, but that one we can extrapolate it to. The delta, we haven't talked about that, but there's a delta. We can extrapolate that to these other lower features, and we can basically say, this is an age that's older than those rocks, and it is younger than those rocks. We don't know what the age is, but we know, relatively speaking, how it relates to those rocks. So when we bring back that rock ah. to Earth and we study it, then we can really tie in. So it's, it's all about um, being strategic and right. prioritizing the sample cache and that we'll maximize our, our, our science return on earth. That's really interesting. So, so in other words, you're, you're building the, the chronology, but with, you know, with question mark, question mark, question mark for all of the actual dates of when these things happened. But then if you get that one sample, it's the key that'll unlock the whole stack. Yeah. And, and it's probably more than one, right. But, but you can see how we can, you know, we don't know how these, this 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 sequence of the geologic history relates to this sequence, but if we can determine this age and this age, now we have an absolute tie line that we can relate. So even if we can't relate them in a relative sense, once we get that absolute rock age, we can then put it all back together. Um, that's 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 really cool. So. I mean, when I think about the kinds of geological structures here, say you've got sediments that are forming over certain periods of time, we know fairly accurately how long these things take, how long this say glacial tail for took to form and how long this river sediment came together. But do when you see similar features on Mars, can you make assumptions about how long these things took to form? Or is this sort of part of the question? It's a really good question, I, and I and I think that that uh, um, you know people have experience looking at Mars and trying to understand the history of Mars, and that's mostly based on um, uh, observations of the sorts of geologic terrain that you were just describing and relating it back to Earth. We also have uh, the ability to determine relative ages by looking at the frequency of crater 
um, sizes uh, and abundances on surfaces. Um, that's a relative chronology. Uh, but um, on Mars, we know we have um, a very different scenario. That is, you know, on Earth where we have plate tectonics and things are, are reworked and we've lost all these ancient terrains, on Mars, you have these terrains that have lasted. You know, my, you maybe had that geologic event, that that landslide or that lava flow or eruption, but then you have two billion years or more afterwards where it's just there. And so, you know, coming most of my all of my field experience is from Earth, <laughs> and so when I first started working uh, with the Mars team, the Mars rover, and looking at the sur surface of Mars and seeing actual rocks, I was one of the first things I was struck by is how I had to recalibrate my eye to say, okay, that's a lava flow. That's what it looks like after 2 billion years of weathering or, or surface, right. you know, processing. A lot of it is wind-borne physical, you know, erosion, if you will. Um, and I'm still trying to get my eye calibrated to that. So we're um, not so, going to have a flow that's that's 2 billion years old here on Earth. They're all gone. You only get the ones that are a couple, well, of, a couple of thousand years old. We do have some, but very, very few rocks that are, I mean, we have no rocks that are that are more than like three and a half billion years old, you know, no landforms. There are, there are some, like I was talking about these exotic clots or relics of grains or what have you in some of the ancient terrains, say in, in Australia, where we can say, oh, there must have been a continental crust or there must have been some crustal material 3.8 or 4 billion years ago. But it's not like we're walking across a rock, you know, uh, a sequence that's that old. Whereas on Mars, everything's old. <laughs> you know, that's not true. I mean, some of the stuff is being uh, uh, blown around today. So you do have some so regolith and some, you know, dust building up and other things that are certainly younger than that. But the rocks themselves presumably um, are you know, at least two and a half billion years old. Um, and some of the rocks we're anticipating to run into could be older than four, uh, especially outside of the crater. And so that's really, really old to have a rock, uh, you know, surface. And, and that's really exciting because that's, that's, you know, uh, just to, to kind of back up a, a, a little bit, if we again take our understanding of Earth and sort of inject it onto Mars, um, you know, three and a half, four billion years ago, that's that's when some of the the first life began to form on Earth, based on the fossil record. Uh, uh, I should say two and a half to three and a half that range. Um, uh, and on Mars, what we know uh, is that the climate changed somewhere in that same time period from probably what we would consider habitable, you know, so it's warm enough and there's enough water, humid enough that you could support life, to one that is currently today, very, very uh, harsh. Not that you couldn't have subsurface, uh, you know, niches or environments where organisms could live, but certainly at the surface, super dry, uh, you know, and, and very cold. Um, and so anyways, my point being is, is that in this time period, this isn't an accident. This is by design. We went to this area, <laughs> right? Because we were, it's a sort of a cross section of the right sort of, we have a delta lake, you know, shoreline type of environment of this age with the anticipation that we would likely or more likely, uh, you know, stumble upon, if you will, uh, environments that could contain, you know, evidence of life, biomarkers, or at least have the potential is the main point. So we, we have the potential to be in that time and you know, sort of geologics, you know, ecosystem, if you will, or I should say environment. Eco is kind of implying life. But. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it is interesting to me that that in looking through the terrain on Mars, you are seeing these features, as you say, rocks that are 4 billion years old, features that are 
that are much longer lived than we have on Earth. And so, in fact, not only can we, you know, hope to discover if there's evidence of, of conditions for life on Mars, we can learn a ton just about what earlier Earth might have looked like because yeah. you've got feature you can see as, as I said like what 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 happens to a lava flow over you know over billions of years as opposed to thousands that like a full yeah. a fully formed flow right as a, you know in its yeah. full structure that's that's really interesting so okay so we're sort of building towards this so then the next step I guess is you know the story of the Martian rovers is, of course, the search for past evidence of water leading up to potentially the conditions for for life on Mars, either today or, or in the past. So what will Perseverance be looking for in like what are going to be, the, you know, because you only have a, a, a small number of samples you can collect. So, you know, each one is going to be very precious. So what what are you hoping like what kinds of things would you see and go oh let's let's sample that please right yeah so we we don't uh anticipate stumbling across uh you know a stromatolite or some right. really super fish super fossil. obvious yeah. fish fossil dinosaur bone we're not gonna trip over that yeah right um but if we did we would know how to sample it and we would bring those back um <laughs> we we don't have any um instruments that that say life Right. We, that's not that we don't have any DNA measurements and maybe DNA wouldn't even be useful. We don't know. Um, but we do have an array of instruments that are that are, you know, next generation in the sense that they are tuned to look for for uh, mostly geochemical, but also um, looking for image um, features that would be indicative of biosignatures. Um, and so your, your question is, you know, how would we kind of like sort through this haystack to find those samples that we really want to get at? And again, we're using our geologic intuition. So, we, you know, right. we, we aren't going to go. Yeah, so that's what I was guessing. It's like, like, I'm assuming that you're, you're going to see it from a geologist standpoint first, to just make a decision on where you're going to lick a rock. That's right. So we spent, um, uh, well, it, during the cruise stage, when the when we knew that the, the the rover was on its way and it wasn't just standing on the rocket <laughs> waiting to, to, to be launched, uh, we had a, a, a series of strategic planning sessions where we, using you know remote observations, largely from the Mars uh, uh, reconnaissance uh, observer, I mean, where we're we're you know we're seeing uh, digital elevation, we're seeing some um, kind of mineralogical uh, signatures from spectral data. We were able to work out, and people have been doing this a lot, but we were focused specifically in the area that we were <laughs> going to uh, to identify the sort of highest potential places that we wanted the rover to visit. And so we put together a, a series of 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 high priority uh, targets. And then we spent time connecting the dots. Do we have the do we have the time to make it, you know, with our with our expert engineers, rover driver planners, you know, who have a you know an algorithm for ca calculating how long it would go over that kind of terrain versus going over this flatter terrain and you know this type of thing. Um, basically, identified how we could best, like in a constellation, right, from stars, how we could best reach those various high priority targets. Of course, everything changes when we hit the ground because we didn't know exactly where we were going to start <laughs> because that was an automated process where it was avoiding hazards. We we're going to a really exciting area that has hazards, but we didn't know exactly where it was going to land us. 
Um, and so it, it landed us to a certain place, which I was super excited about, a little further away from the Delta. Um, but that was good because it then allowed us, kind of forced us to study more than just the Delta, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of like the crater floor and leading up. Not that we wouldn't have, but this really provides a, a richness, a wealth of that, that earlier history. Um, and so then when we got uh, on the ground, we're doing the same type of thing where now we have, we have a starting point. And so we're saying, okay, well, those, those rover traverses are out that didn't start here, that started way over there because we're, <laughs> we're not going to go dry for 100 days over there to then start, right? And so then we put together new rover plans, um, and we're constantly updating these. Um, and we have a notional list of, of, of those sites, and we have a notional list of the types of samples that we'd expect from those sites. And your question really was, for the, from the sample perspective, what types of samples were we looking for? And so, you know, again, we're using our geologic uh, intuition or geologic experience and uh you know i'm not the, the most experienced sort of astrobiologist on the team by far but but i know something about uh what we're looking for and so we're looking for uh units for example that might be at the bottom of of lake beds that that are fine-grained and have clays and you know are, are where these types of microorganisms might have of uh, been able to live obviously uh you know the delta itself is if, if you've looked at natural delta, natural, uh, uh, current deltas on Earth, I mean, not natural, <laughs> uh, where, where, you know, like in Alaska, where you're seeing uh, that the, you know, the ribbon of the, of the rivers um, kind of coalesce into the, to a, a body of water, you can see it being reworked again and again and again in these, these stages of, of the delta and the sediment being you know, redistributed sort of in a sort of a, like a, a sprinkler sense going yeah. back and forth. Um, and and, and in within that, you can see, and like uh, on Earth, you can see the the kind of uh, pastel yellows and oranges and reds and greens that are these microbes. And so, and, and that's that, so that's again using our our. This is now not so much geologic, but like ecology intuition that that those delta units and specific layers, the finer grain layers, will will retain. Uh, evidence of of those organisms. And so we're looking for fine grain um, sediment. Um, obviously, we're looking for anything that's got organics in it. Uh, we, we have uh, uh, the ability with our uh, instruments that have spectrometers that can like uh, that would not spectrometers in the, in the mass spectrometer, but looking at uh, spectral like light or various types of electromagnetic light, uh, looking at Raman signatures and ultraviolet signatures that can determine specific organic molecules and what have you. So we can say, okay, this layer is organic rich. This layer is not. Well, we're going to go for the one that's organic rich, right? If once we get to, once we've geologically defined that, we can't do any of this before we get to Mars, right? We can say, okay, there's the delta, there's the bottom of the delta. Um, but now we can drive up and we can use those, those instruments literally to scan over those beds uh, and say, okay, this is the layer that we want. We're still in the search of that, that, <laughs> that layer we've just started. Right. Um, uh, but those are the types of things that we are looking for. Um, another thing that's really interesting about Jezero and another reason why we went there um, uh, was, or it was proposed to go there and then we, we finally decided was the, the presence of carbonate. Carbonate is really common on earth. Um, it's a, it's fossiliferous often on earth, not always, but uh, it's, it's, it's got a, 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 a a, a large, a large amount of carbon or carbonate on Earth is is related to the carbon cycle and related to life, and so you know being able to go to a place where we identified carbonate from from you know a remote from from orbit 
or from Earth even too, where we can then go and look at those units, that will be another place to really focus on. We're just actually pulling into an area that may have some carbonate. The main carbonate deposits that we think are actually at the margin of the crater. And so we won't be getting to that for maybe 100, maybe 200 days. <laughs> so but, what would a what would a deposit look like? I'm, I'm, you know, we're building a new house since we've got a lot of um, earth moving equipment around here right now. And it's interesting, we're sort of seeing places where previous people buried organic material. And so we're seeing deposits of old tree material. But it's essentially now it's just like a right. dark layer that gets that gets unveiled as the excavator is pulling out a chunk of, of dirt. And we know that in the past, someone sort of turned stuff upside down. And we're seeing this material. So like, like what would what would be the cause of a deposit on on Mars and what would it sort of look like to Perseverance? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and there are a couple factors that would play into what it would look like. Um, the main thing would be the amount, the composition. So I don't mean the carbon necessarily, but I do mean the carbon content. So oftentimes it's not just uh, carbon it's not graphite um, although your your tree trunks will eventually become graphite if they had time to to get <laughs> buried and baked um, but uh it's it's the combination of elements and so um, that will uh, play a role and so in, in terms of of our geologic setting generally speaking we have an inlet channel of material from a watershed that's pouring into the the crater we believe that there was a lake maybe the lake um, uh, was a transient lake that sometimes it dried up. Um, this is what we're really excited about uh, understanding, and and that that change of lake level and drying and 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 um, you know filling again. Those are all really great environments to sort of you know generate uh, you know ecosystems or you know niches where that are habitable. Anyways, depending on how the river history and and our one of our most recent studies. Uh, that we published very recently uh, in Science showed so there was events that that were that sometimes flooding events were bringing material into uh, the the crater floor and so those would dictate how diluted the carbon signature would be depending on what material was being brought from the watershed so the water itself is carrying nutrients and carrying sediment and carrying uh, material into and then depositing into the crater sometimes. Uh, into a lake, we think, and then sometimes maybe no lake, but as rivers into the various channels, which they could be more concentrated. And so that would de determine sort of what they like the concentration of carbon or the, the nutrients or the materials. The other thing that that uh, that would play to your your question is how much burial occurred. And so, you know, if if we are and we're not certain exactly where we are in terms of the ultimate depth of burial, we, we may be pretty close to the surface. And so then these rocks have not experienced a lot of overburden. But the overburden, that will determine how sort of uh, metamorphosed or even just altered rocks will become. And so, you know, when you see fossilized material you know, in, you know, sort of planar uh, uh, rocks, Oftentimes, that's a combination of the you know, the pressures and the fluids and the temperatures of those fluids that have come through. So that's a that's a, a long-winded answer to say that, that it's basically what you you know if you're thinking of it about it in your kitchen, it's what you what can you know, what parts of the uh, you know uh, of the the, the um, recipe, what ingredients do you have, and then how do you bake it, and how do you stack it, um, and so you know dark material tends to be organic, but it 
but you can also get iron that becomes dark, <laughs> right? And so that that would that would dictate how things look. Um, right. That's a long answer. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, it's like I think, as I said earlier, you only have three dozen samples that can come home, and so each one has to be chosen very carefully and 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 so i just imagine just all of this geological experience coming to bear to just kind of go there so um so you've got to this yeah. point now where you you know you've 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 chosen you've see something that looks like fine sediment that is laid down on a this you know from a from a flowing river or or maybe some ancient deposit how would you even choose where within that within that sedimentary level? I'm assuming you're seeing it from the side. So how would you choose, like how thick is this going to be? And, and how would you choose where to actually drill to get what you need? Yeah, it's a really uh, good question. And I just wanted to add another thing and a big part of what I would like to think that I'm contributing uh, as a team member is not just which sample but actually which suite of samples. And so, you know, I was getting at before, you know, we could use this sample because because it stratigraphically is constraining those below it and those above it, right? And it's the same thing for um, uh, whether it's a geochemical observation rather than a geochronological observation. You know, if, if we can constrain um, uh, effectively uh, the samples that we want in the delta, uh, and 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 look at the carbonate cement in them, for example. We would like to be able to compare that because that tells us something about the chemistry potentially of the water that was in the lake um, at the time that the delta was forming and what have you. We would like to be able to compare that to other examples uh, in the geologic history of, of the crater fill that might get at the chemistry of water in the crater. So, you know, looking, so here's an example of a suite of samples uh, that are hypothetical. You know, if we found an, an older, whether it's, you know, we could determine its absolute age in the lab or even just its relative age through, uh, you know, relative position and say, okay, here's a carbonate or here's a, a cement um, that we know is, is the most uh, ancient uh, and it has this composition and therefore we can extrapolate what kind of water chemistry was was interacting with that rock at that time filling in the pores you know like your your hard water in your bathtub uh you know and relate that to the same type of minerals that are forming in much younger much being uh, we're not exactly sure <laughs> 500 million years maybe or, or maybe more um um ones in this in the delta we can then look at the changing history of of the water that was in that lake it, it may not uh, have been a constant body of water, but it, but th that history and that change, if it, whether it's been more alkaline or it can be more, uh, you know, acidic, these types of environments and these compositions um, are are more or less habitable. And and also, they are at least on Earth, it's not always the case that one is habitable and one is not. But it's the type of organism or the type of 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 biochemical chemistry that needs to go on for that organism to live. And so those types of things are really interesting to us because it's, you, you know, you, if you have, if you know what the water chemistry is, you can kind of infer like what kind of organic chemistry of an organism, kind of charge transfer, if you will, or what have you, is needed to, to live in that environment. You do have to protect your, spend all your time protecting yourself from the acidic chemistry uh, or, or not. And you can open yourself up and, 
and I'm personifying these microbes, but you know, <laughs> you know, get nutrients in a different way. And so that those are the types of of, of samples we would be interested in pairing. But it but it does sound like again, you know, it, always in the back of your mind is that you've only got like what's the total number of samples that you're going to be able to in a future return mission? It's like thirty ish, right? It's a it it's in flux, but we have right. a total number of tubes, yeah. uh, and, and so that total number of tubes is 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 just over forty. Um, but we expect sort of our working number is like thirty. Yeah, right, because some of them are are sort of like filled with samples controls from Earth. Well, oh, that's an addition to some of the, the 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 blanks, if you will, or the or the background. But, but what we're doing, at least currently, is that we're planning to, uh, in this the Jezero area, that's the name of the crater. We're planning to collect um, about ten individual samples uh, that we are going to pair, and so we're actually getting two tubes. And then we have a little bit more to get a couple more samples that we don't have. We're not going to pair, um, uh, but in, because we have this these two tubes, we're actually going to have the plan is this may change, but the plan is is that we're going to stash or cache uh, a, a subset, one set of the pairs, at a place before we embark. I mean, embark on a, a, the next round or the extended portion of our mission. We would carry one set of those 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 pairs with us, and then leave this pile—not exactly a pile, but you know—leave in an area um, this this first round of samples. Um, and so, uh, anyways, that's we may be able to go back and get all of them. People are talking about you know, what if we had two? Uh, you know, we're planning to get one cache. That's the that's the Mars. When I say we now, I'm talking about the big we, NASA yeah. we, yeah. United States world we, With not, ESA, not yeah. Mars 2020 we. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it may be that, I mean, it would, I'm just, I'm just telling you what I think. I have no, this is not a NASA uh, level decision, but, or what have you, but it, you know, if there's a second cache that, that, that is left there, that, that has been thoughtfully put together, it would make a lot of sense to go back and get that one too. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, cause even one, you know, there are a lot of us scientists that would be super excited to have that sample that comes back. We're not all going to get, I mean, there's going to be a, a lot of sample relatively speaking compared to what we have because we have none, but you know, <laughs> going back, you know, getting all the samples would be ideal. Of course. Of course. Yeah. But that all said, we have to, like you said, we have to prioritize and what we have the ability to do and what we're doing constantly is that we're putting, we're documenting the samples. And this is part of what I'm doing, what I'm, and what my colleagues are uh, that are focused on samples are doing is uh, are sort of documenting the samples in enough detail that we'll be able to, to intercompare them as we march along and as we collect more. And then eventually when we're in a situation of, of the, the, the next co you know, collection of the cash, we'll say, okay, we want one, five, seven, eight, 12, 1432. Those are the ones we have to have back, right? Because, you know, because we, we've documented all these observations, they are tied to the geologic history. In this way, they're a diverse suite. They, they provide maximum science when, com, in, com, uh, when brought back together, that type of thing. And so documenting what we, what we have and what we don't have is part of the game. Right. And, but obviously, as you say, there's going to be an extended mission. And so uh, like how they're like test tube size, these, these, these samples, right? And the, and you're you've got about thirty ish. You know that number is in as in flux as you say, and they are going to be extracted, deposited on the ground, or are they going to be held on the rover 
they're going to be cash. So they're currently held in the yeah they're currently held in the rover. So just to, just to be clear, we have about forty. Yeah. We're, we're thinking that we're going to be able to bring back thirty. Right. So we're going to leave like fourteen or so in the first cache, and then we'll then we'll take those pairs and then continue to collect more as, as we go on. And so at the end, we would have one cache that's got thirty-ish and one cache that's got like fifteen-ish, something okay. like this. Right. Right. Um, if you can, if you're counting the blanks and what have you. Right. Um, and so. Uh, the way it works is, is that is a, we, you know, we, we have a, uh, a bit that drills into the rock and then ideally if it doesn't fall out <laughs> like it did in the first time. Or crumble uh, into powder. We, yeah. Yeah. Trouble into powder. Right. We, we then, uh, you know, we take a picture, make sure it's in there, looks good, seal it. And then that same arm uh, holding uh, uh, position then sticks it, it basically into the belly of the rover and it gets put into this chassis this this carousel of samples that have you know tubes that now are filled and we'll carry those we could carry all of them um but because we have we're carrying all those tubes now because we went in and grabbed a tube and brought it out to drill right and so um the idea is is that we would leave whatever 15 ish um and that first cache around that could be fetched and gathered up and, and brought home or and then we'd carry the pairs and then collect the rest and at the very end in six or eight years from now uh you know four Martian sols or what, I mean, years, uh, or five, depending on how you do the math. Um, we would, if, if we were to, to drop the second cache, we would then just pull everything out that we have and put them out. And then in, in, uh, folks all over the world are working on this next stage where they have a, a fe so-called fetch rover mm -hmm. that has the ability um, will, or will have the ability to go in and then say, okay, I'm going to take this tube and, and, and stack it in this tube and stack it in this tube it has to be able to kind of vacuum up if you will uh but in a very precise way because i don't want that tube i want this tube and you know and collect the ones of that final bit that we would bring back um and the, the total number as you say is 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 probably in that 30-ish range i mean obviously um if everything goes well you know the, the qualified life is not as long as is the second the end of the second extension of the mission but if the Mars, you know, science lab is is a key to the past, we have a fantastic rover, right? And it should, I mean, we should be able to continue going. You know, who knows? If, if a two gets jammed in our bit, then we're, we're yeah. going to be sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and that's why we'd have the first cache. You know, if that first cache was, was there, even if we went for the second, we'd have that first cache and that would return. And I mean... When I think about spirit and opportunity, both rovers, were, you know, their initial missions for th were for three months. They lasted for, I mean, we think about opportunity like a decade. Um, so, do you foresee? Is there is there a way to do sample collection after the tubes run out? No, but we can do science. It, it, assuming that the 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 rest of the hardware works, um, we we can. You know, we still have the ability. Uh, I mean, we'd have to kind of like re relax some of our our, cont our contamination control um, uh, constraints, but we could still continue to abrade. Um, our our abrading bits will, of course, get themselves abraded, <laughs> you know, uh, worn down a bit, so they'll become probably less effective. Um, and hopefully, uh, everything is gonna is gonna start to degrade because that's why we have a qualified life for. Yeah. It's not one life, but you know, different components have a, a longer life, but if the past is a key to the present, many of our instruments and our cameras and things will continue to work and we can continue to do science, really effective science after all the sample tubes are, are used. Um, so but that, 
I guess I'm would envisioning be like we're like, doing now. So could you? Cool. Could you? I mean, you know, until the bit actually abrades to the point that it's that it's not able to actually drill anymore. Couldn't you extract samples? Just deposit them down mark them with the GPS that they're there sitting on the surface of Mars. And although it wouldn't be as pristine, I guess the the worry that I have is like, if you know, because curiosity and perseverance have this, this RTG, they can run for a very long time. And I, I can imagine that maybe the best is yet to come that you go through your initial mission, you find all the samples that yeah. that that looked good within the, the mission parameter. And then five years later, eight years later, perseverance runs across like the perfect rock. And yeah, and you and you make a sample. And, you know, even though obviously have leaving a chunk of rock out on the surface of Mars for three years, while the next, you know, collection mission is put together is suboptimal. There's there would still be something like if I gave you a a chunk of rock and said, this sample is taken from the surface of Mars five years ago and sat on the surface for three years. Do you want it? And you wouldn't be like, nah, just throw it in the garbage. Right. Right. Value. Well, so, I mean, you know, the future is, is, you know, hard to predict. And, it, you know, this is, this is one of the most um, um, debated and um, um, important issues that we deal with now or later. Right. And so we have these, these sort of this trade space where we're competing with we have a you know burden in the pocket now uh, yeah. versus what we can get later. Um, and, you know, we have we have a lot of smart people thinking about this and they're pushing against each other a little bit in a good way. Right. You know, we have the, the scientists that are saying these are the scientifically most compelling things. And then we have the engineers that are saying, yeah, but just remember uh, you know, right now things are working great, but if you kind of like extrapolate our models, this, you know, this and this is when things may not work. And then there are the, the realists that are like, and when we fall off that, you know, small cliff and, and you know, and, and just, you know, just, you know, slightly lodge that tube into the build it and then we can't use it again, we're done, right? You know, so you have all these, these, these uh, uh, worry warts and then optimists that are, that are kind yeah. of like playing into each other having this conversation and so i mean literally we just had this this science team meeting in the last three days and one of the big questions is is that here's our notional cache we have to sample every 70 sols or 70 days um in order to do it and sometimes it's not going to be the best sample right but if we don't sample now we're not going to get those samples back when the mars sample return mission is is collecting them because we will not have collected them in time because it, it doesn't the collection itself is not a, a single afternoon thing like it would be on earth we actually have uh, about nine, about 10 days, um, sort of minimum in our sort of our normal sample sol path, we call it, where we're, 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 we're basically targeting what we're, this is after we decided to sample, right? This is the unit, right? So then we're like targeting the outcrop and then we're refining that target and taking the sort of the context images that we need to then position the different instruments. And then we are making those instrument measurements Then we're abrading it and saying, okay, verifying, this is what we're looking at, you know, backing up and then we have to move a little bit over and then actually taking the core. And all those things of course are interlaced with days where where we are getting we're giving it instructions what to do some of it's automated but then it's downloading and showing us okay it was there was no fault it was successful and we kind of do this and so each sample just collecting a pair of samples is is you know an 11 12 day right. process and then if we have any questions like oh i really think that you know that that maybe if we looked at the inside of that borehole we might 
learn a little bit more, you know, and then you do a little follow-up measurement or what have you. And so, you know, and then we have to drive to the next place, right? And so in order to, to fit all that in is part of our calculus. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we, we only got a, a couple of minutes left. So I just want to give sort of one final answer, which is sort of the point of this whole process. So at some point in the next, say, decade, ESA and NASA put together their sample return mission, the the chase rover grabs the the samples puts them into the return rocket the samples are returned to earth they sh they arrive on earth safely and they are distributed to scientists around the world to go to work to finally get their hands on pieces of of mars and potentially a a place where life could have been in the past what would be the thing that people would be looking for what would be the the ex like the slam dunk as you looked through those samples and, you know, obviously, you know, a chunk of fossil, a chunk of would be great, but, but more, you know, something that's real, that's more like, yeah, more realistic that you're, but would also say, yes, definitively there was life on Mars in the past. Yeah. So I think that this, uh, this obviously is the most important question and, and a really good question. And uh, I think that we should look at it through the eyes of how we look at ancient terrestrial rocks and look for life. Right. And so we don't just take one sample and have one um, person uh, look at it and say, oh, yes, right, with their one technique. And, and what we're going to what we're going to have, the what we do on Earth is, is we have a, a bunch of uh, folks using a variety of different techniques and combining those observations to come up with a um, case for it being life. It's not just a little squiggly uh, texture. That squiggly texture actually has an alignment of minerals and or has, uh, you know, certain chemical uh, constituents that require sort of a, a electron transfer process that is like the the cell membrane or you know, or you know you have like I was talking about before you have these organisms or these potential organisms in a rock that's recording uh, a habitable water right so you you put together this these different various pieces uh, to to make that case um, and, and ultimately, you know, we will never know until we actually find an organism. Uh, and, you know, biologists are the ones who are going to be able to tell us, is that a microorganism or not? Or I should say a fossil organism. They, they degrade over time, of course, and they, and they become more squinty, if you will. Um, you know, some of my uh, uh, colleagues and professors when I was a graduate student spent a lot of time doing this on ancient Earth. Um, but when you start to put together observation after observation after observation, uh, when you're back at, on Earth in the lab, when we're combining chemistry and structure and um, relation interrelationships between, like I was saying, the the, the water chemistry, making sure you know, they have the, nut the nutrients that need. This is the right type of looking organism that you have. Those are the types of observations that, that we are, we would say, yeah, this is this is clearly a a, a fossil microbe. Um, and, and 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 with with a a lot of the instruments. Uh, the resolution, the instrument or the, the technique is what we're doing on Mars. It's just really the resolution that we need. We need to be able to really refine that we have the phosphorus, that we have the, the, the um, specific type of, of organic molecule. You know, those types of measurements that are done in more sophisticated uh, labs, uh, some like we have at Johnson, but, but uh, you know, other places around the world, um, that will be used to definitively in combination like the chronology that i was getting at you know where you're using multiple uh, systems those multiple observations will then tell us that we that we have a fossil microbe. and 
And is there, I mean, it's really difficult to prove a negative, but is there anything that would definitively tell you our assumptions about Mars being habitable in the past are wrong and that it never was habitable? Uh, that's yeah. So, um, you know, we can't, you know, we can't prove a negative, but certainly part of what we know we can answer is whether or not we can determine whether we will observe habitable environments on Mars, right? That is something that we can determine through the chemistry of the rocks, through the, the, the history that is laid down, uh, in, in the, in the geologic record, we'll be able to search for, for those various different, um, habitable landforms. And that's a big part of, uh, those of us who are, are more geochemists or geologists who are not biologists or not, you know, astrobiologists, if you will, will be, will be focused on, you know, one of the big things that, that I, um, have stressed a little bit here, but would stress is that, you know, we have more than just the crater to search. The outside of the crater has a number of other potential water, you know, uh, rich lake, small pond, looks like fluvial channel, et cetera, et cetera. And the rocks are, the range of rocks is like 2 billion years out there. And so through all these different environments, if we find zero habitable environments, um, when we look in detail, that will be pretty conclusive. But I think that that we've already passed that already, mm -hmm. right? We, we were in a crater where that where we see, okay, that, maybe that was too strongly stated. I think we're close to, 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 to sort of demonstrate that, that this environment that we have in the crater, for, grossly speaking, is one in which um, life could have formed. We have cl clear evidence for it of this delta. It wasn't just something that looked like a delta. When we go up and look at the outcrop itself, we see the the, the structure within the, the the layers and beds of the the delta being deltaic, meaning you know people have looked at these these so-called bed forms in detail all over the world, and you know they can they know what the, what the shape is and what the height is, depending on whether those those, those grains of, of material, sands, are settling through water, right, it, it, or whether it's you know wind. All those things have been studied in detail, and so we are very confident that this is a you know a delta that was, you know, being formed in water, and so that to you know first and you know you know zeroth order is a habitable environment. So now we just need to find material that that would record signatures of of the chemistry and signatures of the organics or the of, of the actual biomarkers um, which is we haven't done yet that's that's yeah. the next step yeah fantastic well i don't want to take any more of your time uh justin absolutely fascinating and it it is uh, a pretty exciting time to be uh watching this space and seeing as as we're in the process of eventually getting pieces of Mars back here on Earth to, to study and maybe we can answer like one of the most important scientific questions that's ever been been asked. So so good luck if you uh, with thank with you. your search. And uh, and let us I feel know. very lucky and fortunate. Yeah. And let us know if you find anything. I will for sure. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Okay, great.